Order. Questions to the Prime Minister. Mr. Philip Hollabone. Number one, sir. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I'm sure the whole House will wish to join me in paying tribute to Marine Nigel Mead from 4-2 Commando, Royal Marines, who was killed by an improvised explosive device in Afghanistan on Sunday. He was a selfless, enthusiastic and committed Marine who has made the ultimate sacrifice in the service of our country. Our thoughts must be with his family, his friends and his colleagues. Mr Speaker, this morning I had meetings with ministerial colleagues and others. In addition to my duties in this House, this afternoon I'll be travelling to Dublin as part of this week's historic state visit by Her Majesty the Queen. Mr Philip Hollabone. May I associate myself and my constituents with the Prime Minister's words of condolence? Uh, Under rules introduced in 2003, illegal migrants who managed to avoid the authorities for 14 years are able to apply for permanent stay, have full access to the welfare system and can even even obtain a British passport. Given that in the last eight years nearly 10,000 such migrants have won such rights and with an estimated half a million illegal immigrants in Britain today, will the Prime Minister seek to change these rules and restore some sanity to Britain's border control. Well, my honourable friend makes an important point, and we have pledged to break the link between temporary migration and permanent settlement in the UK, because we believe that settling in Britain should be a privilege rather than an automatic right if you've evaded the authorities for a certain amount of time. We're going to consult on further measures, including the future of the 14-year rule that he mentions, and we'll make announcements later this year. We've already announced there will be tighter rules for those wanting to settle here and have already implemented a new income and English language requirement for skilled workers who've been here for more than five years. Miliband. Mr Speaker, can I start by joining the Prime Minister in paying tribute to Marine Nigel Mead from 4-2 Commando, the Royal Marines. He showed exceptional bravery and courage like all of our troops in Afghanistan and our thoughts are with his family and friends. Mr Speaker, the role of the Justice Secretary is to speak for the nation on matters of justice and crime. This morning, the, the mor- this morning, the Justice Secretary was on the radio suggesting that there were serious rapes and other categories of rapes. Would the Prime Minister now like to take this opportunity to distance himself from the Justice Secretary's comments? Well, first of all, let me say that rape is one of the most serious crimes that there is, and it should be met with proper punishment. Anyone who's ever met a rape victim and talked to them about what that experience means to them and how it stays with them for the rest of their life could only want to have the most serious punishment possible. The real disgrace in our country is that only 6% of rapes that are reported to a police station end in a conviction. That is what we have to sort out. Now, I have not heard the Justice Secretary's interview, but the position of the government is very clear, that there is an offence called rape, and anyone who commits it should be prosecuted, convicted, and punished very severely. Well, well, let me tell him what the Justice Secretary said this morning, because he was asked about the average time that a uh, rapist gets, and and the interviewer said, a rapist gets five years. And then the Justice Secretary said in reply that includes date rape, 17-year-olds having intercourse with 15-year-olds. He went on to say that there were categories of forcible rape and serious rape. Mr Speaker, the Justice Secretary cannot speak for the women of this country when he makes comments like that. As I say, I have not heard this this interview, but the, the point is this. 
The point is this. It should be a matter for the court to decide the seriousness of the offence and the sentence that ought to be passed. I sat on the Sexual Offences Bill under the last Government, where we looked at all of the issues about whether you should try and differentiate between different categories of rape. I seem to remember, actually, the Honourable Gentleman sitting on the front bench was leading the debate for the Government. And we decided, as a House of Commons, not to make that distinction. What matters is, do we get more cases to court, do we get more cases convicted, and do we get more cases sent down for decent sentences? That is the concern we should have. Mr Speaker, the Prime Minister, when he leaves this chamber, should go and look at the comments of the Justice Secretary. And let me just say to him very clearly, the Justice Secretary should not be in his post at the end of today. Now, 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 that's the first thing he should do. The second thing he should do is he should the second thing is he has to do is to drop this policy. Because this policy that they are defending is the idea that if you plead if you plead guilty to rape, you get your sentence halved. That could mean that rapists spend as little as fifteen months in prison. That is not an acceptable policy, and the Prime Minister should drop it. I think what the Leader of the Opposition might be doing is jumping to conclusions uh, on on this issue. The the, the point is this. There is already a plea bargaining system in Britain of one-third, and we are consulting on whether to extend a plea bargaining system to make it uh, even more powerful. We have not yet decided which offences it should apply to or how it should be brought in. This is a consultation. But the aim of plea bargaining, and it is worth remembering this, because plea bargaining is used in systems including very tough criminal justice systems like America. And the aim of plea bargaining is to make sure that more people get prosecuted, more people get convicted, and you actually save the victim from having to go through a court process and find out at the end that the culprit is going to commit a guilty plea at the last minute. That is what uh, the government is looking at. And when we've listened to the consultation, we will announce our conclusions. But he needs to be patient until we do that. Mr Speaker, we're getting used to this as on health when there's a terrible policy. The Prime Minister just hides behind the consultation. Frankly, 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 it's just not good enough. Let, let, me, let, me tell him, let me tell him what people think about this policy. Let me tell him about that. Let me tell him what people think of this policy. The judges are saying the policy is wrong. End violence against women is saying it's the wrong policy. And his own victims commissioner says the policy is bonkers. Now, I know he's in the middle of a consultation, but I'd like to hear his view on this policy, which he should drop. The terrible fact that he refers to, the terrible fact, is that only 6% of rape cases are actually prosecuted and end in a conviction. That is after 13 years of the party opposite running the criminal justice system. So that's the improvement we want to see. Let's make sure. He wants to know my view. My view is get out there, convict, prosecute and send these people down for a decent period of time. That is what we should be doing. Rape is such a serious offence. And so he should wait for the outcome of the consultation rather than just jumping on the bandwagon. Mr Speaker, it's about the way he runs his government. Because yesterday yesterday the Justice Secretary was saying this proposal is likely to survive the consultation. The Prisons Minister was defending the policy. People are rightly angry about this policy. They think it's the wrong policy. All I'm asking is something very simple. Why doesn't the Prime Minister give us his view? 
But I, I've given you my view, and I'll give you my. I have. I want to see more people prosecuted and convicted for rape, and we're going to take steps to make sure that happens. But I'll give you my view on something else. But yes, which is this. I think there is merit in having a plea bargaining system, which we have already, which should be discretionary to try and make sure we convict more. What we had under the last government was a mandatory release of all prisoners, irrespective of what they've done. Yes, he sat in the cabinet that let 80,000 criminals out of prison. That wasn't a discretionary policy, it was a mandatory policy, and it was a disgraceful policy. Mr. Speaker, Mr. Speaker, do, doesn't he realise what people are thinking of him on crime? Before the election, he made a whole series of promises, and now he is breaking them one by one. He's, he's out of touch. He was out of touch on anonymity for rape victims, and now he's out of touch on sentencing for rape victims. He's cutting the number of police, cutting 12,000 police officers. Why doesn't he go back to the drawing board on crime and get rid of his justice secretary? Well, in terms of broken promises, I remember the Leader of the Opposition saying at his party conference about Ken Clark, I'm not going to say he's soft on crime. Well, that pledge didn't last very long. One of these days, the party opposite is going to realise opposition is more than just jumping on a bandwagon, picking up an issue. It's about putting forward a serious alternative and making some serious points. Order! Sir Alan Hazelhurst. By way of contrast, Mr. Speaker, in, in harmony with the priority being given by the government to strengthening relations with the Commonwealth, does my right honourable friend attach importance to the particular role of the Commonwealth Parliamentary Association? And will he mark that, do his best to find a way of marking that when the centennial conference of the CPA takes place in London in July? I'm very grateful to my honourable friend for raising this issue. I do think the Commonwealth Parliamentary Association is an important part of the Commonwealth. And in celebrating that anniversary, I've had an extremely attractive invitation to come along and say a few words, and I'll certainly see if I can. Mr. Tom Blenkinsop. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Why is the Prime Minister giving private and confidential NHS prescription records of nine million British citizens to multinational private companies that will no doubt show no mercy with that information? Yeah. I think what we're trying to do is clean up the mess of Labour's NHS IT programme that costs billions of pounds and is still struggling and we're desperately trying to get it under control, make sure we can save money to put into healthcare. Simon Kirby. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Would the Prime Minister join me in sending a message of support to Tony Blair's former speechwriter, Peter Hyman, who is seeking to set up one of the Coalition's excellent new free schools in East London? It's funny they don't want to listen to Tony Blair's speechwriter. They, they listened with such rapt attention for so many years to what he said. I welcome the free schools policy, and I very much welcome uh, what, the, what Peter Hyman is doing, trying to establish a free school. I think this is an excellent policy. And yesterday we had a new policy from the party opposite where the shadow education secretary said this. He said, just because he is opposed to the free schools policy doesn't mean he's opposed to every free school. <laughs> I think we're back to the days of John Prescott, where you can't have new good schools because everyone might want to go to them. 
We're back to old Labour. Mr Speaker, doesn't the visit of Her Majesty the Queen to the Irish Republic this week uh, demonstrate not just her own personal courage in carrying out such a visit in the uh, face of severe dissident terrorist threats, but it also demonstrates whatever reservations some of us may have about one particular aspect of her visit, it also demonstrates the extent of the improvement in relations between the Irish Republic and the United Kingdom, which Northern Ireland is a proud part. It also demonstrates a recognition of Northern Ireland's status, but it also an opportunity to build on cooperation to fight the dissident terrorists who still plague us, both in Northern Ireland and the Republic. I think the Honourable Gentleman is right in, in every respect. I think this is a remarkable visit. I think it demonstrates that the re- relationship between Britain and the Republic of Ireland is strong and probably has never been stronger. And with a successful devolution of policing and justice, that made this visit possible. And I think the scenes on our television screen last night of the visits that Her Majesty made to heal the wounds of the past, but also to look to a very bright future between our two countries are remarkable and hugely welcome. Sir Alan Beef. Mr Speaker, since it's the people of this country who have paid the enormous bills for bank failures, shouldn't they get some reward for their sacrifice when the banks are eventually denationalised by giving them shares? And will you look at the imaginative scheme put forward by my honourable friend, the member for Bristol West, and now I think backed by the Sun newspaper to do this? Well, I think it's, uh, I will certainly look at all the possible ways of putting the uh, banks that are nationalised back into the private sector. I personally strongly support the idea of widening share ownership, so we'll look carefully at the scheme uh, that he suggests. But also, we've got to make sure we secure value for money for the taxpayer as we try and fill in the great deep pit of debt we were left by the party opposite. Rachel Reeves. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Today, hundreds of women in their 50s, supported by Age UK, have come to Parliament to protest against unfair changes to their pensions. The coalition agreement says that there will be no increase in women's state pension age before 2020, yet in the pensions bill, that increase starts in 2018. Why the U-turn? Yet again, another reform that is important for making sure our pension system is affordable and sustainable that the party opposite has completely given up on. What we're doing with pensions is linking them back to earnings, something that was promised repeatedly but never done, and making sure our pension system is sustainable for the long term. That's what we're delivering, something never done by the party opposite. Mr James Gray. Uh, Mr Speaker, the people of England have almost as much to lose from any move towards Scottish independence or the break-up of the Union as do the people of Scotland. Will then the Prime Minister give us all a vote in a referendum on the subject? My my view is clear that if the Scottish Parliament wants to hold a referendum, I think that would be a retrograde step, but if they want to hold that referendum, we have to grant that referendum. I would then want to join with everyone in this House and beyond who supports our United Kingdom to make sure we keep it together. That is the process that we should go through, but it would involve a vote for people in Scotland, not a vote for the rest of the United Kingdom. Michael Connerty. Thank you, Mr Speaker. I am a very generous person. I uh, compliment the Government and eventually decided to sign up to the EU trafficking, human trafficking uh, directive. But the recent report by the Scottish Children's Commissioner said he could identify 200 children trafficked into Scotland, an expat UK, 1,000 children into uh, the rest of the UK. Both bodies recommended that the UK Government appoint an independent human trafficking rapporteur and strengthen guardianship system for, uh, for children. With the Government having cut specialist teams in the Home Office and the 
police in this area? How can they give the House an assurance that the UK is actually prepared for the responsibility that comes with signing up to the EU directive? I will look carefully at what the Honourable Gentleman says, because I know that he has a very deep concern about this trafficking issue, as many members in our House do. And frankly, the fact that children and young adults are trafficked for sex and other purposes in our world is completely disgraceful, and we have to stamp it out. As he said, we have signed up to this directive, we were already complying with the terms of this directive, and we need to make sure we do everything we can to stamp out this repulsive practice. Order. Closed question. Dr Julian Lewis. Seven, Mr Speaker. Uh, although I have discussions on many issues with the Leader of the Opposition, the nuclear deterrent has not recently been one of them. Uh, that is partly because the Government's policy is absolutely clear. We are committed to retaining an independent nuclear deterrent based on Trident. My right hon. Friend, the Defence Secretary, will make a statement to Parliament today announcing our decision to proceed with initial gate. Dr Julian Lewis. I am grateful to the Prime Minister for repeating our commitment to the future of Trident, its renewal and indeed continuous at sea deterrence remaining in place. Would he give his blessing to those honourable members, both in the Conservative Party and on the Labour benches, who think like him that the nuclear deterrent should be above party politics, that we should form an alliance on this important issue, just as we did on the alternative vote so successfully? I do agree with my honourable friend that it would be better if we could elevate this issue over party politics. And indeed, when we voted to go ahead uh, with Trident, it was on the basis of a Labour motion that was supported by most Labour MPs and supported by almost all, I believe, Conservative MPs. But I have to say, with the honourable gentleman, I have a feeling he will never be satisfied, even if I placed a Trident submarine in the Solent, opposite his constituency, and handed him the code, something I'm afraid I'm simply not prepared to do. Mr Paul Flynn, why, con- why continue to waste billions on a national virility symbol which has played no part in any of the military operations we've taken part in in the last seven years and is unlikely to pay any part in the future? Doesn't it give justification and encouragement to other countries to acquire their own nuclear weapons. I don't really accept either part of his argument. First of all, we're signatories to the non-proliferation agreement and we are strong supporters of it. But secondly, the point of our nuclear deterrent is just that. It is a deterrent. It is the ultimate insurance policy against blackmail or attack by other countries. And that is why I believe it is right to maintain it and indeed to replace it. Question number eight, Mr James Clapperson. Does, does my right honourable friend agree that there is no case for giving the EU power over taxation, least of all in present circumstances? Can he assure me that the government will simply say no to the proposed EU directive for a corporate common tax base? I can certainly reassure my uh, honourable friend. The point that those in the EU who want to see uh, further tax harmonisation, they're normally making one of two arguments. Either they want to raise more money for the EU, which I don't agree with, or secondly, they're trying to reduce tax competition within the EU, which I also don't agree with. I think it's very important we keep our competitive tax rates and we don't give the European Union further, uh, f- further coverage of our tax base. John Robertson. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Prime Minister, the ministerial code is extensive in its guidelines into the rules governing ministers. 
But what is his policy and his government's policy on those ministers that break the ministerial code? Well, obviously, breaking the ministerial code is an extremely serious offence. Now, I know he has asked questions before about my right honourable friend, the member for Epsom. Uh, and let me just uh, be clear that the employment minister played no part in the decision to make uh, making process to uh, no part in the decision-making process to award work programme contracts. And I wanted to make that point clear to him as he asked me the question. Oliver Colville. Um, Thank you, Mr Speaker. May may I echo um, the tributes that my right honourable friend made to Nigel Mead, the young Royal Marine who is serving with three commando brigade, which is based in my Plymouth Sutton and and Devonport constituency. Given the recent inflation figures and the loose monetary conditions which contributed to the uh, causes of the credit crunch, should my right honourable friend now lead a fundamental debate reviewing the inflation target and the operational workings of the monetary policy committee? The, the, the point I'd make to my uh, honourable friend is this. I think one of the fundamental causes of the problems in the credit crunch was the poor regulation of our banking system, the poor regulation of credit. And we've actually taken steps to put that right by putting the Bank of England back at the pinnacle of that system after the failure of the system put in place by the party opposite. In terms of inflation, I strongly support monetary policy being independent, established by the Bank of England. I don't want to go back to the bad old days of the Treasury setting interest rates. I think it's better to have it vested in the Monetary Policy Committee of the Bank of England. Jessica Morden. Thank you, Mr Speaker. A number of my constituents with very serious health conditions are being declared fit for work by the Department of Work and Pensions Work Capability Assessment. Can the Prime Minister give me a guarantee that the assessment will be fit for purpose by the time of the big move from incapacity to ESA, and especially in light of cuts to DWP? Well, of course we want to get these tests right, but I believe what the tests are showing are that it's been wrong to leave so many people on benefits for so long without proper assessment. Now, of course, you can always improve the processes, and we'll make sure we do that as we go along, but I think it's absolutely right to go through people on all benefits and ask if they can work, what help do they need to work, and then if they are offered work that they don't take, frankly, they shouldn't go on getting benefits. Sir Peter Tapsell. Now, now that there is to be a full investigation into the abduction or murder of Madeleine McCain, isn't there a much stronger case for a full investigation into the suicide or murder of Dr David Kelly? Well, my uh, honourable friend is, is, is raising two issues. Firstly, on the issue of Madeleine McCann, what I would say is I think it is welcome that the Metropolitan Police have decided to review the case and review the paperwork. On the issue of Dr David Kelly, I thought the results of the inquest that were carried out and the report into it were fairly clear, and I don't think it's necessary to take that case forward. Dennis Skinner. <laughs> Is the uh, Prime Minister aware that the most revealing statistic in recent days has been the fact that in recession hit Britain the billionaires have gone up by 20, an increase of 37% in the first year of this Tory rule? Whilst in the real world, inflation's going to the roof, thousands of blind people are having to march through the streets of London to hang on to their disability living allowance. What a savage indictment 
and this lousy, rotten The most I can I can see he enjoyed that. Here the Prime Minister's reply. The Prime Minister. I think the most revealing statistic today is the fact the unemployment figures show that employment in our country is up by 118,000, unemployment is down by 36,000, and youth unemployment fell by 30,000. Those are the statistics of what's really happening in the real world, rather than in dinosaur land that he still inherits. Anna Subri. Mr Speaker, hard-working families in Broxtow want a cap on benefits, but the party opposite is voting against such a cap. Would the Prime Minister help us in this way? Who's living in the real world and who's representing real families, us or them? The Honourable Lady is entirely right. What we are proposing is a cap on benefits that a family can receive of £26,000. You'd have to earn something like £40,000 to get that level of benefit. And frankly, there'll be people watching this thinking, I'm earning £15,000, £16,000, £17,000. Why am I paying my taxes to go to families that are getting more than £26,000 in benefits? So to answer her question, we're the ones who are in touch with what people want, and the party opposite seems to have gone to sleep. Julie Elliott. Speaker, uh, what can the Prime Minister say to the people in Sunderland, the largest city in the North East and my constituents, on the news that the Olympic torch is not stopping in the city? Well, I have to say I wasn't aware of that, and perhaps I can look into the route the Olympic torch is taking, and if it's possible to divert it via Sunderland, I will certainly do my best. I'll go James. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Um, an increasing number of judgments coming out of the European Court of Human Rights and the European Court of Justice are deeply unpopular in our country and intrude on what should be the reserves of member states. Can the Prime Minister assure my constituents that he will use every ounce of his considerable personal authority to support efforts to push back on these overbearing institutions? I I agree with the Honourable Lady. In terms of the ECHR, we are leading the process of trying to reform that court so it pays more attention to the decisions of national parliaments and, crucially, national courts. In terms of the ECJ, one of the things we must do is stop the transfer of further powers from Westminster to Brussels, and that's why we're putting in place the referendum lock. Mr Barry Sherman. Does the Prime Minister think the power and influence of this House of Commons will be diminished or increased by the reforms to the House of Lords announced yesterday? I think Parliament will be increased as a whole in terms of its authority and its respect. I think it is right to insert into the House of Lords some elected peers so that actually we recognise that in the modern world it's right to have two chambers, both of which are predominantly elected. That's the policy of the government. What I would say is it's quite clear to me that there are massive divisions on all sides of the House about this policy. But what we must do is it's an opportunity for the House of Commons to try and find a path through this so we achieve what was, frankly, in every manifesto, which was elections to the House of Lords. Alok Sharma. 
Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Um, an independent investigation is due to report back regarding allegations that Reading Borough Council, when last under Labour control, diverted Section 106 monies to plug gaps in the general budget and also to fund unrelated projects. Can the, uh, can the Prime Minister offer any advice on how residents will be able to make use of the localism bill to make sure that Section 106 money is spent correctly? Yeah. Well, I would make two points to my right honourable friend. First of all, the localism bill does give local people a greater ability to influence Section 106 money. But there's also this point. Because of the new homes bonus, because councils that go ahead with building homes will get more money, they don't have to feel they have to go for the one big huge development that draws in the Section 106 money. It may be that a different pattern of development, more in tune with what local people want, will actually deliver some of the benefits that local people want to see. Jenny Chapman. Can I return the Prime Minister to his remarks earlier about rape? While we all support moves to make the justice system easier for women, many people out there, victims and non-victims alike, find his proposals to reduce sentences by up to 50% abhorrent and frightening. The only responsible thing for him to do is to take this out of any consultation now. What what the Honourable Lady says is not what we're proposing. That, that That is the point. And let me, let me make this point as well. This government, because we take the crime of rape so seriously, we've actually boosted the funding for rape crisis centres. But the real need in this, which I think the whole House, frankly, should unite over, is the fact that 94% of rapists are walking the streets free because they haven't been convicted. That's what we've got to change. Mr Aidan Burley. Speaker, there are currently 2,500 trades union representatives across the public sector paid not to do the service they represent, but instead to do campaigning activities that should be funded by the unions. And because the unions don't pay their salaries, they can spend their subs on other things, like paying subsidising that lot. Don't you think it's time this was reformed? My honourable friend raises an important point, and it's interesting that if ever you raise a point about union funding, you get shouted down by the party opposite because they don't want any examination of what trade unions do or how much money they give to the Labour Party. I think they protest a little bit too much. Ian Lavery. I'm absolutely delighted to be supported by the trade union movement. Can I ask, you, can, can, can I ask the, the Prime Minister why he hasn't sacked his uh, NHS advisor, uh, David Britnell, who said that the NHS would be sure no mercy it would be a big opportunity for private property, for private profit, and would transform the NHS into an insurance provider and not a state deliverer. Um, well, this, I'm very, very grateful to the honourable gentleman to allow me to clear this up because when I read about Mr. Britnell being my advisor, I was slightly puzzled um, because I've never heard of this person in my life and he is not my advisor. But I did a little bit of research and it turns out that he was an advisor to the last government. There's plenty more. He helped develop Labour's NHS plan in 2000, which increased the role of the private sector. He was appointed by Labour as the chief executive of one of the ten strategic health authorities set up by Labour. And uh, when the leader of the opposition was in the Cabinet, Mark Britnell was Director General for Commissioning in the NHS. So while I don't know him, I suspect members opposite probably know him rather well.
understand why the House doesn't wish to hear Mr Andrew Tyree. I was rather impressed by that last answer, but I will draw the Prime Minister on something else. Yesterday, the Government announced plans to reform the Second Chamber. Uh, Can the Prime Minister tell the House whether he will use all means necessary, including the Parliament Tax, to protect the Coalition's legislative programme? The the short answer is yes. This is government legislation, like any other piece of government legislation, and it will be scrutinised and carried through, debated and discussed, and then passed in the same way.